Well, what a great morning already to sing together and to worship Jesus, uh, remembering His resurrection. There is so much joy this morning, and all because of what He has done. Um, I want to invite you to start uh, turning in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. What we're doing this morning is not really different from what we do every Sunday morning. We actually intentionally have made our service just like last week and the week before that. Uh, We want you to have an experience of the normal, ordinary gathering of Grace Rancho. Uh, We didn't want to do the old bait and switch. We come and we got something on Easter Sunday and you think, wow, that's amazing. I want to come back again. And nothing's the same. Uh, This is who we are. We just, this is what we do. We're actually picking up this morning in the scriptures at the very last place we left off. So we'll be in Mark chapter 8, and we'll be in verses 27 to 38. And I hope you'll come to see the value in just unpacking the scriptures as we work through them. John Lennon is one of my favorite musicians. Not that I agree with everything he believed and taught, the things he said. He was a leading member of my favorite band, the Beatles, at one point in his music career, said something that caused thousands of people, if not millions, to be enraged, to denounce his music, to build a bonfire with his albums thrown in. What is it that he said? He said, Christianity will go. It will vanish and shrink. I needn't argue about that. I know I'm right, and I will be proved right. We're more popular than Jesus now. I don't know which will go first, rock and roll or Christianity. You could still search online and find images of great fires uh, uh, with in the middle books and uh, newspaper clippings and albums being torched there. I think it was a bit of an overreaction. Not just because I like the music, but because it's really not a new claim. People have been saying that for years, that Christianity is a temporary fad that will soon vanish and be gone. Back in the roaring 20s, Zelda Fitzgerald, the wife of F. Scott Fitzgerald, asked Ernest Hemingway, do you think Al Jolson is greater than Jesus? Do any of you know who Al Jolson is? (laughs) I don't. In the 1700s, French philosopher Voltaire said, A hundred years from now, a hundred years from my death, the Bible will be a museum piece. That was 200 years ago. And here we are on Easter morning. And here, this day, gathered all around the world, our churches gathering in the name of the man Jesus Christ. And they believe that He lived and died and rose again. And they are singing with all their gusto in their hearts, deep down in their bones, they believe that this is true, that this really happened, and that it has changed them from the inside out. And I think you might be visiting this morning because you agree that Jesus was a good man, an influential man, You might even say that he's the most influential man that has ever lived. 
you might have a high respect for Jesus Christ and much admiration for Him. You might even want to learn from Him. You might even say, I live according to the teachings of Jesus. I believe in Him. And you may have even said that you're a Christian because you like His teachings and you happily agree that He is an influential man and that the love that He talked about and the teachings that He shared are good and they should be followed by people. So I don't think that you are in danger at all of totally disrespecting Jesus or thinking that He's irrelevant, that He doesn't matter to us. I don't think that anyone would make that claim, even gathering this morning. They understand, we see it here, that there are all kinds of people all around all the time that do believe that Jesus is who He said He was, and they confess that reality. They believe it's all true. So you're not in danger of totally dismissing Him as an irrelevant figure. But I wonder if you're in danger of something else. Maybe you're in danger of thinking you know Him when you don't. Often the most popular figures are the ones we think we know when we don't actually know them. I mean, how well do you know your favorite celebrity? You might say that you know him or her. But how much do you really know him? It's always a temptation whenever there's a great popular figure for us to all claim that we know that person. When there are many things that we don't actually know. And I think it's very much the case with Jesus. Since he is so popular and since he has been so long revered that many people, especially in a country like ours, that has been called a Christian nation, that we say, we know Jesus. I respect Him. I understand His teachings. But how many people really know Him? How many people have actually studied His life from the original sources? Do you really know what He taught and what He claimed and the significance of the things He taught and claimed? I'll ask you this. Where did your beliefs about Jesus come from? Pop culture? Pop Christianity? A good friend? Well-meaning and well-intentioned? Trying to help you out? Maybe your parents? Many people who claim to know Christ and understand Jesus' teachings would actually say, Jesus is really all about his biggest sayings. Treat others the way you would like to be treated. Turn the other cheek. Don't judge, lest you be judged. That's about all they know about Jesus. And so people will believe those things, agree with them, and say, I know Jesus. Unfortunately, many people don't know what Jesus taught about God about himself, about his belief in a coming judgment, about the existence of heaven and hell, about humanity's deepest problems and deepest needs, about salvation and who gets it and how. A lot of people have high respect for Jesus, but they don't know what Jesus taught about those things, those important things. So that's why, if you were to come 
to our church any time over the last several months, you would have encountered us opening up to the Gospel of Mark, just as we are this morning, and studying Jesus from the earliest manuscript. Mark is the earliest manuscript that we have about Jesus, the earliest biography written about him. It is filled with all kinds of evidences of what happened here is legitimate recording of historical fact, things even that Jesus' followers would be kind of ashamed of unless it was actually true and they had to include it. And so we read this trying to really grasp what Jesus claimed, who he really was, what he really taught. This is the best place for us to understand who he was. And so if you have a copy of the Bible, you're in Mark chapter 8, and I would invite you to look at the verses 27 to 38. I'm just going to read it out loud, and you can hear it for yourself. And then I'll do my best to explain it in a way that we can understand because we actually have landed on one of the most significant portions of the New Testament. Uh, One of the most significant portions in this gospel of who Jesus is presenting himself to be. And I want you all, if you're not a Christian this morning, I'm so glad you're here. You're welcome to return. And I want you to grapple a little bit with what the Bible says about who he is and what Jesus claimed about himself. Verse 27, it says, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And we'll stop there this morning. And I want to divide this text into three parts and help you understand what is being said here. And I want to give each heading of each part a question that is answered in the text. Uh, From verses 27 to 30, I want to answer the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And then in verses 31 to 33, I want to answer the question, what did he do? And lastly, in verses 34 to 38, I want to point out what true faith looks like. What does it mean to have saving faith? What does it mean to have saving faith? Who does Jesus save? So we're in verse 27. Let's start here with who is Jesus. It says there in verse 27 that Jesus is on his way with the disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. 
If you've been with us along the way in Mark, you realize that at this point in Jesus' ministry, he's mainly focusing on the disciples. He has taught the multitudes. He has healed. He has cast out demons. He has done many miraculous things. And then the Pharisees and the scribes and the leaders of the Jewish society at that time, they rejected him. They claimed that everything he was doing was from the power of Satan, not the power of God, so they rejected him. And so at this point, Jesus has now begun to focus on the 12 disciples to teach them and to instruct them for after he departs so that they would know who he is and what they are to do. And so they kind of have been on these retreats. You've noticed if you've been along with us at time to time, they've been trying to get away. And Jesus has been focusing on them and teaching them in private. And here it is. They go up to this place called Caesarea Philippi. That would have been north of Galilee, north of the area that he'd been ministering. And he kind of gets up away. It's a less densely populated area. And so they're getting up away from the people into kind of a retreat type area just with the disciples, and on the way, Jesus asks them this question. You saw it there in the Bible, right? He asks them the question, who do people say that I am? Now, I don't think that Jesus was having some sort of existential crisis. Who am I? Uh, he, he, wasn't, he wasn't dealing with this problem. He knew who he was. Uh, he, all along the, the, the Gospels, if you follow along closely, he knows what he's here to do. In, in fact, in a couple chapters, he will say explicitly what he will do. In this very verse, in the coming verses, he's going to talk about his own death and resurrection. We'll get there in a second. So he doesn't, he's not wondering, who am I? He says to his disciples, who do people say that I am? I think this is a way of teaching them. He wants to help them understand who he truly is. Because all kinds of people have these different ideas about who Jesus is. Recently watched a video of a, a guy going around in New York City talking to people on the streets and asking him this same question, who do you think Jesus is? And you put the microphone in his face or in her face and, and you get all kinds of answers. And I wonder what would happen this morning if we went around with a microphone and we were to ask everyone here, who do you think Jesus is? Well, what kind of answer would you give? Uh, many of the people in, this in these interviews I watched said uh, Jesus was a good teacher. One man said that he was a really good teacher, but his influence got a little bit out of, blown out of proportion. Uh, people shouldn't really be worshiping him. That's a little too far-fetched. Another guy said he's a man who spread peace and love. Another man said he's a, an influential figure, kind of like Gandhi. Now, that wasn't quite what people were saying back in Jesus' day. But he did give them kind of the, what the crowds were saying. Some of them said, you're John the Baptist. If you remember from chapter 6 of Mark, that's what Herod thought. Herod thought that Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead. He recognized that people were following him just as they had followed John the Baptist, that Jesus was a mighty preacher just as John the Baptist was. And so the disciples say, yeah, some people think you're John the Baptist. Your ministry is very similar to his, and some people think that you are him. Others say that you're Elijah. Elijah was a prophet in the Old Testament who was known for doing all kinds of amazing miracles. And, and he stood against the prophets of Baal, the false prophets, and he proved the reality of the existence of the true God, the one true God over against the false gods. And so some people said, well, this is Elijah. Jesus is doing just what Elijah did, and he's doing these miracles. And even some Jews at those, those days would have expected Elijah to be returning. So some people thought it was him, and some were less specific. They didn't really know. He's just one of the prophets, it says. Some people just thought he was a prophet. Any of those things, if, if any of those were true, if he was John the Baptist or Elijah or a prophet, that would have been a big deal. For to, to have a, a man appear on the scene preaching this way and doing mighty miracles, no one disagreed with the reality of the miracles. No one disagreed with the reality of the power of this man. 
Everyone understood that this man was unique and powerful, doing miracles that demanded the attention of the public. But they didn't quite get it. So Jesus asks them, the disciples, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? It says there that Peter, always the spokesman, the first to stand up and say what's on his mind, here he gets it right. He doesn't always get it right. In fact, you'll see in the following verses, he does not get it right. Verse 29, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Don't tell anyone, Peter. This is what Jesus has been doing. He, anytime someone gets an idea of who Jesus might be, he, he, he silences them. Because he doesn't want to create a bunch of hype without them actually hearing the message that he has for them. So he silences Peter. He's called him the Christ. wonder what you think Christ means. Many people think that Christ is Jesus' last name. It is not. Christ is a title. In Greek, it's Christos. It literally is the translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. So Peter is saying, Jesus, I think you are the Messiah. Now, for me to explain that to you might not help you at all. Because we don't have messiahs in America. We have presidents, senators, congressmen, leaders, things like that. But what do you do with a messiah? We don't understand this as an American idea. But if you were a Jew in the first century, you would have known what the messiah was. You would have understood. You would have even had expectations that a messiah might be appearing. In Hebrew, the word messiah literally means anointed one because that's what the ancient Jews did in the Old Testament to anoint someone as their king. It was to identify them and set them apart as the king. And here's what the Messiah is. All throughout the Old Testament Scriptures, there was threaded through, woven through all the stories and all the prophecies, this idea that there's a one coming, this chosen one, who would be the one to undo the curse, who would fix humanity's deepest problems, that He would reign in righteousness, establishing an everlasting kingdom. In fact, if you were to put the Messiah, the teachings of the Messiah, and, and put it into five things, this is what a, a Jew in the first century would have understood that the Old Testament teaches about the coming Messiah. One, that He was God's chosen one. Two, that He was God's sinless servant. Three, that it would be God incarnate, that He would come to His people to rescue them. Four, that it would be Him established as King. And then fifth, that He would rule the world in righteousness. So this is what is happening. I hope you experience a little bit of the weightiness of this claim. He says, Peter said, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. Peter believed that Jesus is the chosen one of God, sinless servant of God, God incarnate coming into the world to establish a kingdom and reign forever. Do you believe that about Jesus? That's what Peter said. That's what Jesus affirmed. In fact, the very idea that he's silencing them says, you got it, you nailed it. In fact, in other uh, parallel passages in the other Gospels, Jesus more outrightly affirms that this is true. This is the truth from heaven that has been revealed to you, Peter. You are exactly right. You got it, the nail on the head. I am the Messiah. 
This is a staggering claim, and it's really good news. Because I wonder if you've looked around and wondered about the sins of humanity, the problems we face, the struggles that are going on in our world. Have you ever thought about what we need? Is education going to fix what ails humanity? Is more technology going to fix it? Is better politicians ultimately going to do the trick? When we understand what's wrong with humanity, we know we don't just need more teachers, we don't just need more politicians, we don't just need more laws. We understand that the fundamental problem of humanity is much deeper than that. We need a Messiah. We need someone else from the outside coming in. We need God in the flesh. We need someone who is divine. We need someone who can rule over us in perfect righteousness. And we need, perhaps beyond all these things, someone who can fix the human heart. That is the problem. We need a Messiah. And that's exactly who Jesus claimed to be in those verses. Let's ask the second question. Well, what did he do? What did he do? Look at verses 31. Now, he began to teach them that the Son of Man, and that, by the way, is another name that he's using for himself, directly referencing the Old Testament prophet Daniel about the coming Son of Man who would be divine. That the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. Verse 32, he said this plainly. Now, this was so staggering. Look at what Peter does. He, he can't handle it. He's, he's probably squirming in his sandals when he knows Jesus is the Messiah. It's like it clicked. Like he's the Messiah. Oh, he's come. The Messiah is here. That means the kingdom's going to be established. That means Roman authority. Roman oppression is going to be gone and Jesus is going to establish the kingdom here. He's so thrilled. And Jesus starts talking about dying. He starts talking about being rejected by the leaders of Israel. And what's this whole rising again on the third day? So Peter, you know, the leader of the disciples takes Jesus aside and rebukes Jesus. Let me just tell you, it's a good idea to never rebuke Jesus. He knows more than you. He's, he's smarter than us. We just Let's not rebuke Jesus. But this is what Peter did. Again, this wouldn't have been included if the Gospels were just some sort of hagiography trying to manufacture something that would be believable or something that would get people to believe Jesus. This is kind of embarrassing for Peter. And he takes, yet it's included. And so he, he takes him aside. He rebukes him. And, and Jesus has to rebuke him. Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. In other words, if you were to think like God thinks, this would make sense. But since you're thinking like a man, and you're thinking of things from a human perspective, none of this will make sense to you until you reframe the perspective to look at all of this from God's perspective. And I would invite you all to do that this morning. None of you will get the significance of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ if you think like a mere man, if you look at this from a human perspective. You have to look at it from the eyes of God. And so here's Jesus explaining that he's going to do three things. What did Jesus do? He mentions three things. First, he's going to be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes. Well, who are they? Those are the leaders of Israel. The leaders of the, the religious leaders of Israel are going to reject Jesus. This shows that Jesus isn't coming to just uh, add an extra religion. He's not just coming to... Um, be another rabbi just in the same system as these others. He is going to totally upturn everything they know. That's why they hate him. That's why they want to kill him. Because they have power and authority in Israel and Jesus is threatening it. Secondly, he says he's going to die. Again, from a human perspective, the reason he is killed is because he so upsets the leaders. Uh, they don't want anything to do with them. They're going to kill him. 
There's more to it. We'll get to that in a second. Third, he also predicts that he's going to rise from the dead. He, he calls the play before it happens. I mean, he shows his mastery over life and death by saying, here's what I'm going to do. I'll just tell you in advance. Uh, I'm going to die and I'm going to rise. I'm going to rise from the dead on the third day. In other words, his death wasn't an unforeseen tragedy. It was a divine strategy. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly why he had come. He had known that he was sent by the Father to die on behalf of the sins of his people and that he would accomplish salvation and rise from the dead. Now, I know that you have heard this before. Even if you're not a Christian, I'm sure none of this is completely new to you. But I wonder, again, if you really know the significance of what's being said here. He talked about his death. Do you understand why the Messiah had to die? The the one who had come and established a kingdom, the one who had come and rule the world in righteousness, why did he not just come and set up the kingdom immediately? Why did he say, I'm going to die first. I've got to suffer. Let's zoom out. Test your knowledge of the Bible a little bit. Some of you have a little bit of Bible knowledge. Some of you have a lot of Bible knowledge. I'm sure you're familiar with the story of Adam and Eve. Uh, Adam and Eve, told by God that there was all kinds of, you know, the whole world is yours to enjoy, but I want you to stay away from one one tree. And the day you eat from the one tree, what's going to happen? You will surely die. You're going to die. The wages of sin is going to be death. And what happened? Adam and Eve sinned. They failed to obey God. They ate from the forbidden tree. And what happened? Well, they didn't immediately die, did they? Uh, They didn't immediately fall down dead in their bodies, physically drop to the ground in in the Garden of Eden. They didn't. That didn't happen. And you read through the narrative, what actually happens is God makes a promise that he's going to crush the serpent that tempted them to sin. And then you know what he does next? God takes an animal, kills it, takes the leather from the skins of that animal, and clothes Adam and Eve so that their shame would be covered. Did you know that happened? So what would Adam and Eve be thinking as they put on this clothing for the first time, covering their guilt and their shame? They would be remembering that God said, when I sinned, I would die. But I didn't die. That animal died. That died, and now because of its death, I am clothed. And my guilt is gone. And my shame is covered up. Huh. Fascinating that God would do that. And then if you were to read further in the Bible, you'd see that the Old Testament Israelites were taught as part of the law of God that they were to kill animals regularly. Some of you guys tremble at the thought of animals being killed so frequently. You love animals. You have them as pets. But Israel was taught to kill animals all the time. Why? Well, God said that you're, you're a sinful people. And I'm a holy God. And the wages of sin is death. And so every time they slaughtered that goat and they slaughtered that bull, they would be thinking to themselves, I am the sinner. I deserve death. But that thing's dying, not me. That thing's suffering, and I somehow go free. That thing bears the punishment that I deserve, and somehow I am now able to be cleansed. And then what happens? You get to Jesus. And when John the Baptist sees Jesus, you know what he says? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus is compared to the spotless Lamb. 
And Jesus volunteers, and this is what He says He'll do. I will go to the cross, and I will suffer and die. And I will hang there, dangling from that wretched cross to suffer the penalty for the sins of the people that trust Me. Why? So that when you look at the cross, you can say, that should have been Me. God said the wages of sin is death. But there He is, dying instead of me. There He is, suffering so I don't have to suffer. There He is, paying the penalty for my guilt and my shame. And then He covers me so that my guilt is removed and my shame is taken away and my sins are forgiven. That's why the Messiah had to die. That God had ordained from the beginning of time that He would enter His own creation Yes, as the Messiah, but also as the one who bears the sins of everyone who trusts Him. So that you, in looking at the cross, can say, He died so I don't have to. He paid for my sins so I could be set free. The guilt that was on me has been laid on Him, and He has been crushed for my iniquities. That is why He died. I want to teach you a new word this morning. Propitiation. You heard that one? We don't talk about this word enough. This is an important word. How many of you have never heard the word propitiation? You don't need to raise your hand. Some of you have never heard this word. And this is a Bible word. And I think you're smart enough to learn this word. So we're going to learn this word this morning. Listen to 1 John 4.10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Let me explain to you what a propitiation is. A propitiation is a word that used to be used in the days when the Bible is preached with clarity. Sometimes preachers think no one's going to understand it, so I'm not going to use it. I'd rather define it for you. A propitiation is a sacrifice that appeases the wrath of God. It is a sacrifice that appeases, that satisfies God's righteous wrath against sin. The Bible says that Jesus' death on the cross was a propitiation. That God the Father is righteously, because He is good, He is against sin. He is against the crimes against Himself and against humanity. He is just, and so He will punish sin. But because God is also merciful and loving and gracious, He Himself entered His creation to satisfy His own divine wrath. The Father pours out His wrath upon the Son on that cross so that all who believe need not fear the righteous judgment of God anymore. That in taking on Christ, we say, He paid it all, I now am free. He suffered, and now I am experiencing the great mercy of God overflowing. God is merciful. He volunteered to suffer Himself. God the Son entered His creation. God the Messiah, Jesus Christ, coming in saying, I will die. Well, why is He dying? He is dying for the sins of His people that they might have a substitutionary sacrifice that propitiates the wrath of God in their place. But that's not all He said He'd do. He said He'd rise. And that's why we're here this morning. Because if Jesus stayed in that tomb, we're all stuck in our sins. Aren't we? If Jesus stayed in that tomb, we have no reason to gather this morning. Go home. If you don't believe that, not really. Stay here. We love you. We're glad you're here. If Jesus did not rise from the dead... We have no hope. Jesus is another Confucius. Jesus is a Gandhi. Jesus is a good man who did some good things and died 
But we are all still guilty in our sins. He conquered death. He paid the full payment. And then to prove that he was in fact who he said he was, the Messiah, he rose from the dead and demonstrated that everything he said about who he was and what he would do was true. And now as the risen Lord, he offers the free forgiveness of sins to all who trust him. This is what he said he would do. Alive right now, he offers salvation to everyone who would have it. This is the best news in the entire universe. This is why we gather. This is why we sing. There was a a small group that we did in our church a few months ago. And we went through a little study called Christianity Explained. And there's one part of it that I thought was particularly helpful. I'm going to give it to you this morning. Uh, As part of the exercise, it said, draw together or put together two envelopes. And on one envelope, I want you to write this. Write, what I have done. And on the other envelope, write, what Christ has done. And and, and look at these two envelopes. Now, in the what I have done envelope, I want you to write the good things that you have done. Uh, Your good deeds, your good works, your efforts, your diligence, your honesty, the the fact that you're hardworking, the fact that you're religious, the fact that you go to church. Put it all in. I'm a good friend. I'm a good son. I'm a good daughter. Put it all in. All in the things I have done. And in this other envelope, what Christ has done, put Life, death, and resurrection. And in the study, they encouraged us to imagine the scenario that you are coming to meet God on Judgment Day and you can take one envelope with you. You can take one envelope with you to stand before Him. Will you choose to stand before God with the envelope that contains all that you have done? all your good deeds and all your efforts and everything you've ever done in the name of God or in the name of love or in the name of morality, whatever reason you've done that thing, you bring that before God. You can do that. Or you can come to God and say, I have nothing. All my good deeds are as filthy rags, tainted, and you are holy, and my sin is great. And I cannot trust anything I've done. So rather what I'm going to do is I'm going to grab the envelope of what Christ has done. And I'm going to bank my eternity. And I'm going to stand before God the judge. Banking on the reality that Jesus lived a perfect life. Died in my place. Rose from the dead. And on the basis of his accomplishments, he will receive me into glory. And I ask you, what are you depending on? Which envelope do you have in your hand? What are you grasping? Do you think that all your good deeds will make you presentable to a holy God? A holy God who searches the hearts, who knows the mind, who knows your past and your present and your future, who knows every last motivation, who knows what's going on, even the things that you don't quite understand. Are you going to present to Him all that you've done as the basis of your acceptance When there's an alternative that's a free gift that God the Son offers His own life to you. He says, I have lived a perfect life that you could not live. I have died in taking the judgment that you deserve and I have conquered death and conquered sin and 
conquered hell and conquered Satan. And on the basis of what I have done, I offer this all to you. Would you receive that envelope? Would you take that freely? If it's offered to you by God Himself, why would you not freely take it? It's yours if you want it. If you have the heart to repent and believe, to turn away from all the things you've done and to grasp that by faith, if you take that envelope, your sins are forgiven, your judgment is gone, your guilt is removed, you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ, it's all yours and you're reconciled to God freely, no cost, no charge, faith and faith alone. We're all holding an envelope right now. And I think some people are here holding the envelope that's labeled what I have done. They're banking their entire eternity before a holy God on the things they're done. And now if, if you and your conscience, you, are, you feel it, you know you're guilty, you know that won't hold before the holiness of God, I would invite you right now, believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of the Son of God so that sinners might be saved. Repent, turn away from everything else, and trust in Christ. And be adopted. I think we all want that. And it's offered to us. The last question that we find in our text is this. Who does Jesus save anyway? Who, who is this? Because most people say, yeah, I agree. He died for me, rose from the dead. Check, check, check. Got it. Going to heaven. But faith... There's all kinds of false, false types of faiths out there. The kind of faith that can agree mentally without agreeing in the heart. The kind of faith that can say, yeah, I check all the boxes, I think it all happened. But deep down, there's no real reliance. There's no trust. Yeah, you might think he can save you, but is he a good Lord to lead you? You want to live your own life. Who does Jesus save? Look at this, verse 34. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. There it is, church. You want this Messiah to be your king? You want this Messiah to be your savior? You want Jesus to be yours? It is faith and faith alone. But let me tell you about the faith, the kind of faith. It's the kind of faith that is real, genuine, down-in-your-bones faith. It's the kind of faith that says, I will give up everything to have Christ. I will deny myself. I am not going to run my life anymore because I can't. I'm a broken, sinful man. All I have is Christ, so I will deny myself. I will take up my cross. What does that mean? I will be willing to suffer if necessary. I will follow Him even if it means dying for Him. That's what faith is like. I will follow him is the third thing. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. That means I understand. I don't know it all. I understand that my mind can't possibly grasp the truths of God. So I'm going to study who he is and what he said he'll be and what his word reveals so that I might know him, so that I might follow him. I want to follow him. That's what faith is. And then verse 35, look at what he says. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. There's a bunch of people in this world who are trying to save their lives and it's fallen through their fingers like sand. They can't grasp it. Their lives are being lost. It's like that career might be the thing that saves me and it doesn't save them. 
And if I get that nicer car, well, that'll do it. If I get the promotion, I can save my life. If I can do all these things, that'll be the key, the solution to having the life that I want to live. And here Jesus is saying, if you want to save your life, lose it for me. Give it to me. Follow me. Don't try to save it. You will lose it. And so I shout to you, if you are trying to save your life, trying to build your life on an empire of the sands, you're just going to be washed away. Don't try to save your own life. Give it to Christ. This is the kind of faith that saves. And then he asks this piercing question. It's the question that has been ringing down through the centuries, that everyone who takes Jesus seriously has to deal with this question. Everyone who wants to consider this reality must face this question. Verse 36, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world? And forfeit his soul. Is that you? Jesus saves those who in faith deny themselves, take up their crosses, follow him. They, they believe so deeply in who he is, that he is the true Messiah, that he's going to come establish a kingdom. And they're banking their eternity on those claims. What can a man give in return for his soul? Anything more valuable than your soul? Are you living like things are more valuable than your soul? He goes on to say, verse 38, Forever is ashamed of me and of my words. Jesus said this. If you're ashamed of my words, clearly he's positioning himself as the divine Messiah. If you're ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus wants no secret disciples. Don't be ashamed of me. If you have come to believe who I am, I am the Messiah. Trust me. All will be made right if you give your life to me. All will turn wrong if you refuse me. Jesus is the true King, the only King, the Messiah who has come, who lived and died and rose for sinners. He's alive right now, and He extends the forgiveness of sins to you, that you must repent and believe and trust Him. And when you do, you are His, and He will bring you into His kingdom to rule and reign with Him forevermore and you'll experience the eternal glory and the eternal bliss of being a child of God. Last year, I I finished a book uh, by Christopher Hitchens, a former atheist, book that he began writing when he got diagnosed with cancer. The book is literally an extended meditation on his own death. Not a long one. Throughout the book, the cancer gets worse and worse and worse. And the, the final, the book, name of the book is Mortality. The final chapter is just scrawled sentence fragments, incomplete thoughts, lines from favorite books or poems, and then it ends abruptly. I was fascinated by the book. Forgive me if it's, if it's morbid, morbid, but it is a meditation. The, the entire book is a, a meditation on death by a man who's rapidly dying. He has some interesting quotes at the end that he's just writing down at the last chapter. I'll share some of them. One of them he wrote, Lost 14 pounds without trying. Thin at last. But I don't feel lighter because walking to the fridge is like a forced march. Another one, No pretense of youth or youthfulness anymore. From now on, an arduous awareness. 
Another, he wrote, I'm not fighting cancer, it's fighting me. Another line, if I convert, it's because it's better that a believer dies than that an atheist does. Or, another here, the misery of seeing oneself on old videos or YouTubes. The one that struck me the most, though, was this quote that he included by another author named Saul Bellow. He wrote this, Death is the dark backing that a mirror needs if we are able to see anything. Read that again. Death is the dark backing that a mirror needs if we are able to see anything. Isn't that fascinating? Here's a man, an intellectual, well-read, dying, and in the last days of his life, he comes to the realization and he puts the line there in the end of his book that facing the reality of your death is really the only way to make sense of your life. Facing the reality of your death is really the only way to make sense of your life. So let me ask you, do you think about your death? We all know it's coming. We act as if we don't, but we all know it's there. We get accused of being morbid if we talk about death. It's coming for us all. And we really cannot understand what is valuable in life until we think about the fact that we will all die. You know what the Bible says? That after death, there is the judgment. So I want to come back to that original question. You have offered to you two envelopes, two options. In the face of your own death, will you stand with your hands grasped onto the envelope that says, what I have done And you're going to trust that you have done enough in your life to be acceptable to God. Or are you going to cling on to what Christ has done and trust that He is enough to make you acceptable to God? That He is the propitiation, the wrath-appeasing sacrifice for your sin. That He is your righteousness that you're clothed in so you can stand before God. That He has accomplished everything for you that you might stand before Him free of judgment only to taste the mercy of God. Here's why we celebrate this morning that Jesus lived, died, and rose for sinners. He is alive right now. And right now, through these words in Scripture, He is again offering you to receive Him as your Christ, as your Messiah, as your Lord, to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Him. And if you do, the fullness of salvation is completely, utterly yours for all eternity. Take it, church. And if you're not yet a Christian, take it this morning and be saved. If you have any questions at all, I would invite you to come talk to me after the service or any of the other members of this church. And please be sure to take what was on that chair or maybe on the ground around you, a little what is the gospel track, take it home, read it, and make it your own. We'd love to continue to help you think through who Jesus is. Pray with me. So, Lord Jesus, you are the Messiah. You lived and died and rose for sinners. You call us to deny ourselves, take up our crosses, and follow you. And if anyone here has not done that, I pray that you would melt their heart, humble them, 
and cause them to cry out for mercy that they might receive it. Give them faith. Open their eyes. And for those of us who have received you, help us to see that to live for anything else in this life is vain, that we can choose to try to live for the things of this world and they will turn up empty. So help us to live for you and for you alone. In Jesus' name, amen.